Welcome to AmiSites, a podcast that offers you access to thought leaders who can help you expand your entrepreneurial toolbox. Learn from seasoned entrepreneurs who have already walked in your shoes and can help you with your day-to-day business decisions. With your host, Ami Kassar. Ami is the founder and CEO of Multifunding, an advisory company that helps you grow and stay in control of your business. Hello and welcome. My name is Ami Kassar, founder and CEO of Multifunding. Since 2010, Multifunding has helped businesses achieve their biggest growth goals through creative and personalized funding solutions, working with hundreds of lenders across the nation. Joining us today is Eric Griffin, better known as Griff. Griff is co-founder of Mobile Outfitters and GSW Apartments, as well as a board member of EO Philadelphia and Back of My Feet. Our main topics today will focus on the biggest lessons learned during this entrepreneurial journey. Welcome, Griff. Hey, Ami. How are you? Hey, man. Tell me everything. I will. I will. Good to see you. Tell me a little bit about some of the highlights of your journey. My entrepreneurial journey? Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those um, serial entrepreneurs you know, since I was a little kid starting businesses. I didn't know it was a business, but side hustle when I was six, eight years old. And uh, this journey actually began, I think, like many journeys. Started in college as a totally different thing. And uh, over time, we kind of figured out who we are, what we want to do. And that turned into Mobile Outfitters, the business that I I run today. So what is Mobile Outfitters? Yeah, good question. We invent and we manufacture cell phone accessories. And we sell them through a network of independently owned retail stores around the world. We've got about 900 stores across 55 countries. And the thing we're really known for is we took a screen protector, which used to be a thing that you bought and shipped around the world. And we invented a machine that makes it on demand at the time of retail in the retail store. Wow. Where can someone find those machines? They're all over. In fact, locally, there's not a ton. North America became a focus for us this year, which is kind of weird because we're a Philadelphia company and we make our stuff right in Philadelphia. But 90% of our sales are actually overseas. So we're like a household name in Dubai and in Italy and in Belgium, a couple of countries across the pond. Um, our closest store here would be like in Texas. So where did you start all this, Griff? How does this, just tell us a little bit of the steps along the way in the journey. Did you do this alone? Do you have partners? What, what happened? Yeah, I mean, this is like your, I mean, it's like your classic pivot, not to, not to use a cliche term, but, you know, in college, we started a business. Um, I first started it first, and then I linked up with a friend of mine who's now my business partner. We would import cell phones, you know, smartphones from Germany, from Finland, from Hong Kong. This is like before the iPhone. So everybody wanted these smartphones. No one knew where to get them in the United States because we didn't have them. And Europe had them. So I would just bring them in, like in my dorm room, keep them under my bed. And I would sell them around campus. And I would sell them online. Then I would sell them wholesale. And that turned into my first job out of college. Dennis and I, my partner, we ran that company out of college. And that company, while it's in a similar space, uh, the iPhone came out and it obliterated that business model. Like nobody wanted the $1,000 Nokia phone when they could go get an iPhone from Singular at the time for 600 bucks. And so in a matter of a year, that business, which was doing about three and a half million in revenue, uh, first year out of college, went to basically zero. And we were left with, what are we, what are we gonna do? I mean, neither of us have ever gotten a job before, but it's kind of feeling like we need to get a job. And in sort of a last ditch effort, we turned that 
cell phone selling company, which was called Import GSM, into, well, what if we, what if we sold screen protectors into the same market, but we made them ourselves? You got better margin, better control. And little did we know that little idea of making a screen protector would turn into mobile outfitters that we have today. What do you think, Griff? Um, well, tell us a little bit about what the company looks like today. How many employees were you located, all that? Yeah, we're located in Philadelphia on Main Street in Maniunk. We do manufacturing, uh, the invention, the research and development, the marketing, pick, pack, warehouse, ship. We do all that under one roof in Philly. Um, we have 35 people that work out of that office every day. And our network uh, is a, what we call master licensees. You can think of it like a franchise in its structure. So you have entrepreneurs around the world that represent the Mobile Outfitters brand. They open Mobile Outfitters retail stores in shopping malls or in retail shops around the world. And ultimately that network does about 50 million in retail sales and they employ about 3,000 people. Tell us about what do you think was unique about your company that allowed you to make that pivot? That's a good question, Ami. So thinking back in hindsight, at the time that pivot happened when the company was Dennis and I. We're 50-50 partners. I've known him since high school. And I no, I don't even know if it was a company. It was like it was like two friends doing a thing. And so the pivot was out of, I don't know, sheer grit and determination not to not to fail and perseverance and some really hard times that that humbled us, humbled us up pretty quickly. I remember when we made that pivot, we hit our rock bottom, which was we had no heat in our office because we didn't pay the gas bill. We both got the flu and we were both sitting there with our hoodies on and a space heater plugged in banging away at a keyboard thinking, how is this thing ever going to work? And, but we just kept at it. And over time we found our niche and slowly started to see some success and we just leaned into it. And so the pivot was really, you know, we're paddling water and we're just trying to keep our head above it because the alternative was to give up, figure out how we pay off the debt and go get a job. And we, we weren't going to let that happen. How do you keep, do you think, how does a company keep that culture of innovation? So we saw COVID make a lot of companies pivot. But it was fascinating to me how you'd walk down, you'd drive down the street, and you'd see one restaurant where they were lined out the door for takeout. And in the same shopping mall, there was a restaurant whose doors were shut. And I always wondered about what it was about that one culture that did it the other culture that didn't clearly at that time of critical need your your culture or the two of you had that in your gut but if your company needed to make a big change again now do you think they could do it yeah i think in our company specifically it's it's kind of it's baked into the not kind of it is baked into the culture um i mean it's, it's part of our it's part of our mission I mean, our mission is to, we challenge the status quo. We create opportunity and fulfillment for others by challenging the status quo. And we put challenge the status quo in there deliberately because if you, if you go back in time and, and replay the video, it's times when we did challenge what we were doing. Even sometimes it's working just fine. You, there is a need to challenge that status quo 
to get to the next level. So many entrepreneurs wait till things break and sometimes it's too late. But we realize that part of our DNA is to constantly challenge the way that we do things yesterday to do it differently tomorrow if it's going to be better for the company. So I think in our case, it's there. It was there. We live it. We breathe it. We talk about it. We hire based on people that have that in them. You know, there's people that hate change and there's nothing wrong with that, but they don't fit at our company. And if you if you have that in your culture, you communicate it and you hire and fire by it, I think then you have a team of people that when that challenge comes, they're not afraid of challenging it and pivoting. They're excited. Like that becomes an opportunity for them to tackle that problem and change the way that things happen. Another way, interesting way to think about it is, again, I, I used to joke about it, but pre-COVID, I used to, in my presentations, joke about what would you do one morning if you woke up and we had, were in war with Iran or North Korea? And all those possibilities seem so distant and abstract. Who would have dreamed that a global pandemic essentially shut our country down? And now, but we also have short memories, right? And so an interesting question to constantly challenge your team about to ask yourself is what could what event could bring your company to its knees? Yeah. And then what are you gonna do about it? <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny, Ami? We so before the pandemic, we used to kick around that idea philosophically and come up with nothing. Because here's how the logic would go. We'd say, okay, we're in 55 countries. So if there's a war between two countries, we've got diversification. If the US is in a recession, we've got diversification. What we never thought is what if brick and mortar retail, because we don't sell online, we are 100% brick and mortar retail. We never thought, it was never even in the realm of possibility. What if brick and mortar retail in every country in the world ceased to exist. And that is exactly what the pandemic did. It didn't hit one or two or five or 10 countries. It hit every country at the same time. And sure enough, our revenue went to zero for like three months. And we never, even though we kicked the question around, we never took it to an extreme. We just kind of said, nah, I can't think of anything. Like, I don't know, solar flare? Like we could, literally couldn't come up with something. Tell us about that pandemic and those three months of going to zero, what you did and how you managed it. Yeah, it was, um, I got a little PTSD thinking about it. We, it was a crazy time because uh, we were coming off our best year ever. 2019 was our best year ever. So 20, going into 2020, we were super optimistic. We had had and have an amazing team. And when the pandemic hit, our biggest market's Italy. So what's interesting is I had a crystal ball because if you remember, right after China, Italy was the next country to get affected and shut down. I was actually in Milan right before they shut down and when i was leaving milan to come back home i was in the airport and there were like guards with guns taking temperatures of everyone getting on the plane and i remember thinking what is going on because no one was talking about it in america yet and i got home i started telling all my friends about that and i'm talking to our italian partners and i'm starting to see how real this is and very quickly i knew there was no stopping this and it was going to affect america and we were going to be locked in our homes I started telling everyone I knew just, yeah, I probably sound like a crazy person, but heads up, this is happening. And so even though I saw it coming, we had a leadership meeting. We said, okay, what's going to happen? And we predicted 30% decline in revenue. And we thought, okay, we can weather 30%. 
And so we made a plan for 30%. And a few days later, we, we regroup, we look at the numbers, and we're already down 50%. And we said, okay, 80% decline in revenue. We make a plan for it. We sleep on it. We come back in, we're at 90% decline, and, and it went to zero. And we said, okay, we need a plan for zero revenue. That's what we need to do, which is literally impossible. And so we told the team we're an open book company where our financials are open. We told our team, this is bad. We have to furlough everyone in the company. We cannot afford to pay you, though we will continue to pay your health care. But because the last thing I think you should do to people during a pandemic is cut their health care. So we paid that. It came you know, right out of a loan. We drew down our entire loan balance. So we had a cash buffer. And we just... At first, we clutched on a receipt and we waited to see what would happen. How did you come out of it? Yeah, so what got us through it is Dennis spotted an opportunity that people would need masks and face shields and no one could get them. If you remember, there was like a huge shortage. No one could get them. So we used our connections, our factory. We have, we have an employee in China who does sourcing. And so we used every connection we had to find and bring in masks. And then we leaned on our network because we never sold a mask before and we're not in that space. I asked everyone I ever knew, I need help. I got a small business. I got people I want to keep. We're, we have masks. Who needs them? And the people I know in my life were just tremendous in connecting the dots, opening the doors. And we ultimately sold a couple million dollars worth of masks um, over that time, which kept the lights on, we started paying our people again, gave them something to do, and got us through it. And obviously, the government helped the PPP loans, which were designed like for our exact situation, were also a godsend, gave us the cash we needed to continue to hire, continue to invest in the future. And then out the other end, which you know we're, we're more or less there now, we're still not back to our peak but we are within striking distance of 2019 numbers and we're back on our feet and we're moving forward. Classic example of the roller coaster of business. And I always say to people, it never goes a straight line. No, it's a crazy, <laughs> hairy, swirly line. <laughs> the, the, the headlines don't, they just want to point out the straight line of, you know, hit, 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 hit. But reality is it's like nine failures for every hit. If you took an entretype and classified you as a serial entrepreneur, let's take a minute and talk about the ingredients that come up in that model and, and if you agree with it or not. So the first thing we measure is control. And part of being a serial entrepreneur is you're okay to have partners. You don't have to have final say in the decisions. Is that a fair description of you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a hard transition that I think many go through and, and many don't make it out the other end of it, which is when you start your company, it's probably just you, which means you have to and get to make every decision every day. And you do that for a while and then you start hiring people and you probably hire people that don't do it the way you would do it. And because you're so used to doing it the way you would do it, in your head, it's wrong. And you hang on to that control. But as soon as you find the power of finding people that are much better at doing things that you're doing in all the different things a business has to do, you realize that if you try and control the decisions of the company, the whole company is now limited by your personal specific knowledge, bandwidth, attention, et cetera. 
which is not good. It's one person. And you're trying to build a company, which is not one person. It's its own living, breathing thing. And so for me, I was definitely that that guy. And over time, it kind of got beaten out of me. And really, hiring amazing people taught me the last thing I want to do is be the person that has to make the decision. But there's a different, maybe there's a different definition of control. One, one is that. So somebody could, so I'll take myself as an example. Ultimately, I have voting control of my company. I have an investor, one investor, but I own the majority, and ultimately it's my decision. And that's very important to me that I don't know if I'd be comfortable like you are to have a 50-50 partner. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't collaborate with folks on my team and try delegating all that stuff, but it, it's, it's not that one way is right or wrong. If there was a board of directors and ultimately one of them could, I could be fired, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Mm. If I had a 50-50 partner or a 51% partner, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. So it's just, it's, it's not that one's right or wrong. It's just a way of thinking about ultimately how sort of the control of the ultimate decisions where, where that buck lies. Yeah. So it's just a way, way to think about it. Yep. I would agree with that. The other thing measures risk tolerance. So you come up as risk flexible that if necessary, you would become to risk personal assets for the success or survival of your business. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at the business like that's the golden goose. Right. And so why would I protect what I have at the detriment of the thing that gave me what I have? I'd rather protect the thing that gives me the future money. So I take a short term, okay, I got to put my stuff on the line. But if I believe in my business, that's the golden goose. Let it keep laying eggs. 100%. Final agreement we, we measure is time horizon. So some people are, we call them builders. Like for me, I'm a builder. I never want to start another business in my life. <laughs> like it's too painful. I'm, I'm maybe one more, whatever, but I'm happy with what I got. And the other people who are flippers, who, who just, they love the process of starting businesses. They want to be involved in many in their life. You come up as a flipper. Is that a fair characteristic? Yeah, it's, the term is interesting because, I mean, I've sold one business, but I've more or less started businesses and held them and enjoy building lasting companies, sustainable companies. But I definitely can't do one thing. I, I, I cannot do one thing at a time. It gives me energy to be able to jump around things that are totally different, totally different challenges and try and solve them. If I do one thing, I tend to get burnt out. Everyone's different. Now, we struggled with the world's builder, builder and flipper. Hmm. So the words often are used are serial business, serial entrepreneur, or lifestyle entrepreneur. Right. I hate, I hate those words. So hmm. that's how we came up with builder and flipper. So Cool. Awesome. Griff, people want to learn more about Mobile Outfitters. Where do they go? Yeah, go to moutfitters.com. I love it. Thank you. Your story's amazing. You're a great guy. Thank you for sharing it with our listeners. Thanks for having me, Ami. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on Ami Sites with your host, Ami Kassar, the foremost SBA thought leader. 
Make sure you visit us at multifunding.com where you can meet our advisory team and learn more about how we help entrepreneurs fund their future.